I, I really didn't pay that careful attention to building and developing my network. And I think that um, that's an extremely important piece. And, and I think that when I was younger, I used to, I used to think about network building as though it, it wasn't authentic because it felt like you were using people. It felt like you were trying to figure out who's most valuable for me. And I didn't like attributing um, value of individuals to what they could do for me. But what I realized is um, it turns out none of us are really that great all by ourselves. And, uh, and so it's, it's not about figuring out who can do what for me. It's really about recognizing that I'm better with other people in my network. And, uh, and I've, I've learned to, to sort of shift that focus a bit and, and realize the value of, of building a network, uh, irregardless of, or regardless of, of what I think you can do for me. Uh, having those relationships and building those, those, um, those connections is extremely important. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, a serial entrepreneur who's grown several startups into seven and eight-figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where he helps startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat, we're always here to help. Now today we've got another great guest on the podcast, Brian Bagwandin. And uh, Brian uh, grew up in the Midwest in Indiana and got a bachelor's and master's degrees in physics, um, started uh, working uh, for Eli Ellie in, the, in their drug department, uh, decided to try and combine um, drug development and physics, and so pursued a PhD in pharmaceutical science, and then went to work for a medical company to help them on their compliance side, and then switched over into the startup world um, with a company and was VP of product development, um, worked for another startup in Texas for a period of time, and then moved to Colorado with a startup uh, to a startup, or went to a startup conference to help uh, solve medical problems. Um, this led to the startup that he's doing today that I'll talk a little bit more about and maybe in a little bit about uh, some of the COVID issues that's uh, popped up with, uh, with the startup and then dealing with that. So with that much as an introduction, welcome on the podcast, Brian. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Great to be here. Absolutely. Um, so I gave the 30-second conden condensed version of a much longer journey, but uh, maybe unpacking that just a bit. So going back a bit back in time, tell us how your journey kind of got uh, started in uh, Indiana. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so as you said, I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in physics. And for those who are uh, in your audience who are Hoosiers, I have a degree from each of the two rival uh, universities, one from Indiana University and one from Purdue. Uh, so I'm splitting my time there. Um, and then as, as you said, I, I went to work, um, oddly enough, for Eli Lilly as a central nervous system physiologist. Uh, learned some things about um, drug development, learned some things about um, central nervous system, about um, rats and animal models and animal husbandry. Um, but I was, I was a bit of a fish out of water, um, having been used to sitting down with a um, calculator and a pencil and an eraser uh, with a piece of uh, graph paper and figuring out what the answer to the problem was. In physics, it was very different when uh, when I transitioned to pharmaceutical discovery. Um, 
So trying to, as you said, trying to put those two things together, um, the physics, the physiology, um, I applied to a biomedical engineering program in at the University of Washington, was accepted, and um, really my research focuses on on um, biomedical sensing and medical instrumentation. Um, so that was the that was the education part of the career. Now, just one or kind of question on that. So you go and you say, okay, working in the drug department, going to love to kind of combine drug development and physics and so you go into the pharmaceutical science now was there kind of a tipping point or period where you said okay i'd like to go back and get a phd it's going to help further my career or it's going to help to combine or i feel like it's you know i don't have experience in this area kind of what was the trigger or the aha moment or the genesis for saying hey i'd like to go back and get the phd great question Devin. um i think i think a big part of it was uh, well there are, there were a couple of factors that that uh, led to that decision. One was, um, I like to have a certain amount of expertise in whatever it is that I do. Um, I, I am a bit of a perfectionist and, uh, and wanna be the best at whatever it is that I do. And I knew that coming into um, drug discovery with a degree in physics put me in a minority category and most of the people I worked with had a decade of education in biology and physiology and, um, and other um, life science studies that for me to catch up was gonna be extremely difficult. So I sort of had that you know, in the back of my mind, but I didn't want that to limit me. But I remember, um, I remember a set of experiments I was doing with, um, with a very, my supervisor was an extremely senior individual in the company and um, and he, he carried a lot of clout, which is why he could hire a, a, a physics student to work in a physiology department. Um, and at that point, I still hadn't had a 100 level biology class in college. So, um, but we were doing these experiments on, uh, it was a stroke model with rats and um, a bit of a funny story, but they were going along swimmingly and then one day it just stopped. We could not re reproduce the results we were getting. Um, the whole study was in jeopardy and we weren't sure what was going on. And after I had exhausted um, my analysis, my sort of repeating the studies, doing what I could, I went to my supervisor and I said, um, I don't know what to do. You know, I need somebody who has greater expertise than I do in this, in this field. And we had a long conversation and eventually he said to me, you know, rats are nocturnal. And maybe if you tried doing the experiments with the lights out, we'd get better results. And I thought to myself, if that's the best you can come up with, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I might be in the wrong field here. Um, and just to, just to complete the story, it's a, it's a little funny. It turns out that that there was, um, there was construction going on across the street and they were putting in a high rise building and they were driving um, iron I-beams into the ground with, a, with an impact hammer and it was sending low amplitude, high frequency uh, ripples through the ground and it was actually keeping the, 
the rats awake all uh, all day long while they were supposed to be sleeping. So they were in fact sleep deprived. It was a it was in fact uh, related to the fact that rats are nocturnal, but um, but it was a it's, it's a bit bit of a funny story that just shows you how much experience really. Um, really matters e even as much as, uh, as expertise does uh, in terms of academic study. So then I went off to the University of Washington, um, looking at sensors, looking at hardware, trying to combine that with, um, with all the things I'd learned about physiology and, and um, multivariate systems, which is a fancy way of saying the body, which has a lot of variables and, and uh, things that you can't control and, and trying to figure out how, how we could um, I could apply my experience and expertise uh, to medical problems. Nice. No, and that's an interesting story. And it's always kind of interesting the variables that you maybe can't account for or wouldn't have thought of that can uh, can impact both the, the study as well as the course that you take. So so now you go and get the PhD, you're coming back out of school, you say, okay, I'd like to, you know have that experience, have that background, or taken a bit of different direction. And then I think you mentioned you came out of school and started working for a, a medical company, helping them on the compliance side. Is that right? Yeah, I, um, I started working for a company in, in Seattle, Washington. It was a product development company that had um, a strong presence in the, in the consumer uh, product world and in the back-end software, uh, enterprise software, and then they also did some um, some one-off work for for various large companies in the area, Hewlett Packard and Microsoft and Apple were their clients, and uh, it was sort of overflow work from them. But they really wanted to get into the 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 founder of that company wanted to get into the medical device business, and uh, and I was the first biomedical engineer that he hired, and um, and we had to set up a we had to set up a compliant development process before we could really get into the business and start doing medical device development. And so I was integral uh, in, in setting that process up and making sure that we were compliant both for, um, for the FDA and also for um, medical CE marking with, um, with Europe. So um, that took that that sort of broadened my experience. And then I spent a lot of time doing development. Um, and, and that was, I, I, can't, I can't speak enough of, um, um, highly enough of, of that experience because for one, an average project that we, we would get would come through, it might take three months. And so I saw so many different medical device development works, you know, I mean, the, I think the longest project I worked on was nine to 12 months, but, but in the course of a number of years, I saw more projects than most people will see in that short period of time. So that was a terrific experience. But in addition to that, um, you know, medical device development, it involves um, sort of multidisciplinary cross-functional teams, mechanical engineering, um, use engineering, electrical engineering, optics, and then there's all the wet chemistry that goes with it and the biology. And, um, and I worked with some terrific people. I mean, they were, they were recruiting software engineers out of Microsoft and they were recruiting electrical engineers out of Fluke, um, the, the test and measurement company. And, um, and they were getting mechanical engineers out of Boeing. So I, I just worked around some really great people. And, um, 
and and I just really cherish those those days and that those experiences. Now, no, and I think that that sounds like a, a lot of you know a, a great experience and a lot of opportunities. And I think you know some of the things that we chatted about a bit was you know throughout that journey. So you went and worked with that compliance side, had some great experiences. You also kind of started to dip your toe into the startup world. And so you got into first working for a company um, in doing the product development or VP of product development. Then you moved to, to Texas for a period of time, worked for another startup um, before moving back to Colorado. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a that's a fair a, a fair mapping of the journey. So Seattle, you know, Indiana to Seattle, Seattle to to Austin, Texas, and Texas uh, north to Colorado. So now, always really in the startup world. So now, as you're doing that, first of all, you know, what kind of directed you into the startup world? Was it just happenstance? It was a fun opportunity. You always wanted to work for a startup. Somebody approached you and made you the proverbial offer you couldn't refuse. Or kind of, how did you get started in those startups? That's a great question. Um, it's funny, one of the, and, and I'll, I'll just start with this anecdote, because I did not grow up in an entrepreneurial environment. Indiana, uh, when I was in, in uh, high school in the 70s and 80s, was a, was a pretty um, blue-collar kind of town. And, um, and I remember when I moved to uh, Seattle in the 90s, I was sitting in a restaurant with my wife and the the table beside us, the person, uh, one of the individuals in the table beside us um, had, had lost their job. And, uh, and the person that they were having dinner with was counseling them that maybe they should put out a shingle and they should just start a business. And this struck my wife and I both, and we talked about it all the way home. It's just like, that is not advice that somebody in Indiana would give you. It just, it wasn't one of the sort of options in the menu is start a company. Why don't you just start a company? Well, that's because that's, you know, that was the spirit in Seattle. And so I got exposed to a lot of that uh, just in the environment. There were a lot of people that I, I came to know who were uh, in the startup world, but also um, a lot of the most interesting projects that came through the product development company that I was working for were the, were the startup companies. They were really doing things that had never been done before. I mean, when Hewlett Packard comes to you and, and says, we're making another printer and uh, you know this is overflow work for us and we'd like you guys to sort of do the development, take it through its paces and, and make sure it gets released on time. Eh, you know, it, it will pay the bills. But when somebody else comes and says, you know, we've got a, a new way of, of determining, of, of setting, um, uh, uh, retarding aging in people. And, uh, and we just wanna build a sensor that looks at this particular biomarker and see if we can uh, identify where we've gone wrong and, uh, and how we can push back the aging process. And nobody's ever done it. You get, you get nothing to start with. And, um, you put an engineering team together, you think about the problem, you have to come up to speed extremely rapidly, and then you have to execute. And, um, and it was an exhilarating and exciting time to, you know, to work on those startup problems. And that's really what I think sparked my curiosity, my interest. Um, it was the kind of thing where you rise and fall by your own, um, by your own merits, but also um, 
you know, there was a there was a there was a sense of being able to celebrate even your failures, right? Because there is something about embracing the idea that I've tried something and it didn't work. And now I, I've learned from it and I'm not going to let that go because that's going to make me better in the future. And, you know, oftentimes that's not something that a larger company will embrace um, and, and, and let happen. No, I think it's uh, definitely some uh, good points and makes sense kind of uh, what caused the, the move over to the kind of the startup world. So now as we kind of jump a bit or again forward, so we talked a little bit about, so you moved around to, to Texas and then back to Colorado. And I think one of the things is you're moving back to Colorado, you got involved with kind of a startup conference or something of that nature. And that kind of set you on the trajectory to where you're at today with the current business. But how did that get started or kind of what was that uh, or what was that part of the journey? Well, the it, it turns out you know as I mentioned earlier there was a lot of um, a lot of startup companies that came through the product development group that I was working with, and one of them came back about two or three years later, and said you did an outstanding job of prototyping for us and um, and we even helped them write some of their technical business uh, plan and that individual um, who was the CEO came and asked if I would be willing to. Um, sort of pull some technology out of the uh, Naval Research Labs, he had an opportunity. And so he invited me to do that. And, and so my first startup was really um, working in Seattle in a in, you know, sort of in stealth mode. Uh, we, he was in Austin, Texas. Um, we took that company to the point where we built some prototypes. We, we, uh, we sold our initial prototypes to the government. They were very happy with it. Um, because it had come out of the Naval Research Labs and, and uh, we translated it from their research to a practical product, sold that company. And then there was another company in, um, in Austin that, uh, that heard about this and they came recruiting and said, hey, um, do you have any, any recommendations for somebody who might lead our product development? Uh, we like what you did there. Um, and they also had been a prior client of, um, of the company in Seattle. And so uh, I then moved to Austin as a consequence of that, uh, helped them with that company. Unfortunately, it did not, um, it, did, it was not a breakthrough uh, unicorn, as they say, um, and uh, stayed with that company until uh, we had to close the doors and then um, moved to Colorado because of personal issues that were going on in my life. Uh, that afforded us that opportunity. And, um, and there was this conference, and it's a very unique thing, um, Devin, here in, in Denver. It's called, it was called 101010. Um, it's now Xgenesis, but 101010 stands for 10 CEOs, 10 wicked problems, and 10 days. And the, um, the organization was founded by a serial entrepreneur who wanted to see um, the entrepreneurial spirit applied to really difficult problems that we face. He would pick a theme, whether it was health or climate or finance, he would pick a theme. His, uh, his team would go out and do uh, put together a, a dossier of um, the, a problem, uh, 10 problems actually, and they put a dossier together for each one of them, consider it a sort of like a, an overview due diligence of the problem, what's been tried, what are the market-based solutions, what are the problems that you potentially run into, 
Um, and those dossiers were then presented to each of these 10 um, potential CEOs. And, uh, and then there's an unusual um, community in Denver. And I think it's because so, so much of the population is a transplant. And so everybody knows if you're new to Denver, they know what that feels like because they were new to Denver at one point as well. And so this, this uh, you know, when I went through the program, there were probably 160 volunteers who gave up 10 days of their time. And some of them, you know, were able to get time from off from work. Some of them took their vacation time to do it. Some of them, it was part of their work. Um, we had attorneys there. We had uh, experienced business leaders. We had, um, uh, you know, I met the, um, the head of uh, um, medical innovation from, um, Kaiser Permanente was there. I, I met the senior health policy advisor from the last two um, governorships. Now, maybe just to, to dive in, just to, to keep the, the, the journey moving forward. So now with that all in mind, kind of where does that put you today or kind of what's the, where are you are currently at? Well, that was, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's really where this company came from. So we came together for 10 days they presented these problems and the problem that was presented, I, I participated as one of the CEOs and they built a team around me to spend 10 days looking at that problem and come up with a market-based solution. And Recalibrate Solutions, which is the company that I started back in 2018 was really born out of that process. And so, um, and some of those people that I met are still involved with the company either as advisors or, um, um, my co-founder was the subject matter expert for this particular, this particular problem. So, um, and it's a, you know, what we're doing is a, is a five minute saliva cortisol sensor to monitor the health of, um, the stress response system in kids. And so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell, but that's, that's where that company came from. Um, it's an extraordinary program. Uh, I spoke to another group about it and they said, we should make a TV show out of that. I mean, that's, uh, and, and it was a pretty extraordinary thing that we did. So that was neat. Now, where is that? So now where's that business today? Is it growing, selling products, pre-launch kind of given the audience an idea of kind of where you, or where's the business at today? So we um, um, have developed the test and uh, we have not, been able to get regulatory, I shouldn't, I shouldn't phrase it that way. We haven't yet submitted for regulatory clearance. Um, so we are in the process of uh, a funding round to um, actually to collect the data we need for our regulatory submission. And um, COVID sort of threw a wrench into our plans and our timelines, but we're still here and, and still working. So that's, um, that's kind of where we are. No, and I definitely get, I mean, if you're working with people in saliva and, and having to be much up close and personal and kind of gathering that, COVID probably makes it a bit difficult to to get uh, a lot of volunteers or people to do that, or the, the state or the, you know, the municipalities will even let you do that. So now you're kind of, as we're coming out of COVID, I guess the first question is, is kind of how did you stay alive or how did you navigate that? Great question. Um, and, and, uh, you know, of course, we were just making it up as we go. I mean, I started, I started a, a funding, launched a funding campaign in 
the end of February 2020. And in March, everything shut down. And, uh, and so everybody took, you know, took their money and said, I'm sorry, we can't make any new investments. Um, we're saving our money to see what happens with this. We want to make sure our current portfolio survives. So, um, so we had originally, our plan was to outsource some of this development. Um, I have contacts with the people who did the original saliva-based HIV test, and they, they did some of this development for us um, initially, and we were going to continue on with them. But um, COVID caused us to actually have to do a technology transfer from, from their development efforts into our labs. Um, we we quickly scrambled and, and signed a facilities use agreement with one of the local universities. We found, um, we added to our, our research team, we added a, um, an assay development chemist, brought all of those that technology in-house and started doing development uh, over the last two years. But one of the things, again, going back to what you said, collecting saliva samples was difficult and uh, during, during our respiratory pandemic. And so um, we developed an artificial saliva that uh, mimicked the saliva that we know about. And, and, uh, and that was just a research effort. There were some things that uh, you can get off the shelf and we started there and modified. And, and so we started continuing our research with, um, with an artificial saliva. And, and now um, as things are easing up on the COVID side, we're starting to collect uh, saliva samples again and, and making sure that and confirming that uh, what we've developed up to this point with artificial saliva is, is, uh, is still valid. Well, it sounds like it was a, a great way to kind of keep the company moving forward, continue to do the research development and, uh, and find out uh, that or find a way to, to continue to, to keep the company uh, or in, uh, moving upward. So well, with that, now as we kind of reach the, the future, the current uh, present uh, point of your journey, it's always a, a great time to transition to the two questions I always ask at the end of each journey. Um, so the first question I always ask is, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made? What did you learn from it? You know, that's an interesting question. And I've thought about that a little bit um, as I've reflected on, on my own journey and, and uh, thought about this podcast coming up. And, and I would say that it has to do with um, not making assumptions about the people who work for you. Um, I, try to, I try to run an organization and manage in a very transparent way. And I try to empower people and I try to have a, uh, I try to encourage people to contribute to whatever it is that we're doing, whether it's development effort or whether it's business development or product development, whatever it is that they have a say and they have a voice. Um, in doing that, you, you know, I frequently will give people the benefit of the doubt and I will make assumptions about how they've taken care of something or how they've handled part of their responsibility. And I'll tell you what happened in this particular situation. I was, um, I was working in product development. Uh, I had a client that we were developing a product for and we, we were due to, um, to do a design review with them and show them how the product was working. And we had, we were going to something like a, you know, order parts for six and make five 
bring them in and you know turn it all on and and let the let the the client watch their product at work and um and we got into the lab and we started um we were going to build these devices up and i turned to the mechanical engineer and um who had done all the design work and i said where are the fasteners and he said i don't i didn't i wasn't responsible for fasteners and and um as a consequence, you know, we were set back pretty significantly by uh, in our schedule because um, I assumed that he would take care of everything that was in the mechanical engineering bucket. And that included during integration that you would have all the fasteners and the PEMs and the nuts and the bolts and, and the rivets that we needed. And, uh, and he didn't, he saw his work as purely design, very good designer, but, um, but needless to say, poor at, at uh, the details uh, as it related to integration and, and moving through that. So I have since learned to um, um, not to make those kinds of assumptions, to be respectful, to still empower people, but to make sure that I'm not just, um, that I'm, I'm inspecting as well as expecting. And, uh, and I think that, that, you know, and it's an easy mistake to make. I think that when you're doing things, sometimes, you know, you're always gauging how much rope to give, how much training, how much autonomy and how many, how much things you can figure out. And sometimes you have to, you know, let people have a bit of rope, figure things out and you don't want to micromanage. But by the same point, if you, if you give them that rope and it, you know, you don't give them, it can be your fault. You don't give them enough guidance. You don't give them enough instructions or can they, they be their fault where they just kind of overlook things or don't, don't really pay attention to the details, but all the, it's all, all the same. It's always that balancing act of, you know, how much do you, or autonomy to give them, how much instructions and that. And I think that's always something that you learn as you, as you continue to go along in a business. Yep. Second question I always ask is if you're talking now to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what'd be the one piece of advice you'd give them? I think that, um, I mean, that, that uh, this is a piece of advice I would give people because, um, because of the mistake I made. Um, and I think that we live in a culture that uh, really promotes and advocates independence. And so people uh, really tend to, to isolate without even trying. And, um, you know, when it came time for me to, to launch my own business and, um, and raise money and build teams, et cetera, et cetera, I found my network was somewhat lacking. And, um, and it turns out that uh, I, I really didn't pay that careful attention to building and developing my network. And I think that um, that's an extremely important piece. And, and I think that when I was younger, I used to, I used to think about network building as though it, it wasn't authentic because it felt like you were using people. It felt like you were trying to figure out who's most valuable for me. And I didn't like attributing um, value of individuals to what they could do for me. But what I realized is um, it turns out none of us are really that great all by ourselves. And, uh, and so it's, it's not about figuring out who can do what for me. It's really about recognizing that I'm better 
with other people in my network and uh, and i've i've learned to to sort of shift that focus a bit and and realize the value of of building a network uh, irregardless of or regardless of of what i think you can do for me uh, having those relationships and building those those um, those connections is extremely important well i think that that's absolutely true and i mean i think that network building is hard because sometimes you know everybody's been on the end where you go to the networking events or you're somewhere and you can just tell that all they're trying to do is make a connection to see if you'll give them some money or you'll purchase their product and they're really not in there to do anything and so it can come across as hey you know network building isn't a good idea or you know it becomes across as you're, you're just trying to ask some people for that and it's really not beneficial to everybody but i think if you can actually figure out no hey let's build a network let's actually add value to each other or just add value to them and someday maybe they'll add value back and you can just and establish actual connections and um and continue to support each other i think that's where a, net, a lot of network building comes in it can make a, a, a great impact but you have to do it under the right guise and i think that's a great takeaway yeah yeah as we wrap up if people want to reach out to you they want to be a customer they want to be a client they want to be an employee they want to be an investor they want to be your next best friend any or all of the above, what's the best way to reach out to you, contact you, find out more? I think um, probably through my LinkedIn profile, um, which I hope you'll include in the show notes um, or, uh, you know, the, the, um, through the website um, at recalibratesolutions.com uh, is another good way to find out what we're doing. And then uh, you can find my LinkedIn profile and connect with me uh, through the website also. Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage people to connect up through with LinkedIn or through the website, reach out to you, support you, and, uh, and maybe even make a new best friend. So, well, with that, um, as we wrap up, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a fun, it's been a pleasure. Now, for all of you that are listeners, if you have your own journey to tell, you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, we'd love to have you. Just go to inventiveguest.com, apply to be on the show. A couple more things as listeners, make sure you click share, subscribe, leave us a review because we want to make sure that everyone finds out about all the or these awesome episodes. Last but not least, if you ever need help with your patents, your trademarks, or anything else with your startup or your small business, just go to strategymeeting.com, grab some time with us to chat. Well, thank you again, Brian, for coming on the podcast and wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thank you, Devin. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great day.